0: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
1: Monster House presents.
2: So this is from TV Guide. Special, in search of ancient astronauts. Rod Sterling narrates a one-hour special examining the theory, phenomena in various parts of the world were created by visitors from other planets in ancient times. So that's the TV Guide blurb for this special In Search of Ancient Astronauts. Welcome to In Research Of, the show where we watch the original TV show In Search Of and consider some of the explanations that the producers chose not to present. This is our pilot episode, and it is about the television special that served as the pilot for the series In Search Of. I want to thank Rachel and Chris Lackey for our theme music. They are the hosts of the wonderful show Rachel Watches Star Trek, and you can find them at rachelwatchesstartrek.com. They're not really involved in this show, but they did serve as an inspiration for our format, and also, I just really like them. Uh, I'm Blake Smith, a writer, researcher, and podcaster. And who are you?
3: My name is Jeb Card, and I'm an archaeologist, professor, and author, possibly also expert on the occult and obtainer of our antiquities.
2: And, and we are gathered here today on a show we're calling In Research Of. In Research Of. We're going to be taking a look at the incredible impact of the TV show In Search Of. And it's a little weird because we're starting off with a show called In Search of Ancient Astronauts. And uh, maybe we could just give a little background on what that is and why this leads to In Search Of.
3: Yeah, so I want to credit probably the person I've seen that's given a a really good discussion of the history of this is Jason Colavito. And if you're listening to this show— and you do not know Jason Colavito's amazing website and blog, then you need to go there. Because I cannot think of anyone who has done a more thorough job, especially online, of in detail critiquing, responding, describing, and assessing all the sort of things on the History Channel and ancient aliens and uh, America on Earth and all of those. And we're not going to be getting to that level of of sort of looking at every – well, we will fact check some things. But that's – we're doing something a little different. What are we doing? Well, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. So Jason Colavito in his 2005 book, Cult of Alien Gods, which is really the first significant – look at some of the origins in fiction, like H.P. Lovecraft, of of ancient aliens and ancient astronauts, he talks about the development of a one-hour, I mean, it's something like 46 minutes, but with commercials, a one-hour special, which airs in 1972, September 1972. You
2: know, I, I don't want to say we're ancient ourselves, but I don't know if people know what you mean by special.
3: Yeah, that's actually a fair point. But so there were, you know, scheduled television shows. And then if there was a thing that wasn't a scheduled television show, which was usually either a like live or not necessarily live, but often live entertainment, like Circus of the Stars, where like they got Hollywood people to like walk on tightropes or some bullshit. Oh, and the um, the, the, <laughs> the variety shows, some variety shows. <laughs> um but uh, they were also where documentaries would be aired on, on mainstream television, which, of course, at this time was only three channels. Uh, and this was one of those. And, and so I remember this. HBO even talked about, like, having specials, even though they didn't have series back then. But that's a different discussion. Uh, cause they would have a very, you know, an HBO yeah. special, but this but is when was you a, had
2: to, you had to have your butt in the seat in front of the television exactly when the show came Oh yes. On. There yeah. was no yeah.
3: time shifting. There was no streaming. These things aired and when we say aired literally through air, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about television broadcasts on the electromagnetic spectrum. But
2: uh, and you didn't run to the kitchen and make a bag of popcorn during the break because there were no microwave popcorns back then. You could but,
3: well hang on, yeah. <laughs> hang on. This show is not sponsored by the Jeffy Pop people. That's yet, true. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you could do that thing over the, the, on stove. the stove. You made it on yeah. the stove exactly. Yeah. yeah. But um, so this in 1972, September 1972, in search of ancient astronauts aired, and. I think it's quite fascinating, given that we're we are uh, recording this a day after the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11's landing on the moon, to note that this was only a few months before the last Apollo mission to the moon, and it is in late 1972. But Jason talks about this, but Alan Landsberg was a producer of a lot of what we can consider basically the origins of paranormal television. Yes, because there really wasn't almost any. Before this, I know I want to say Cronkite did a UFO special, a uh, feature like a news special. He did. I've been trying in like to the that late, yeah. I think, in the late '60s, because in in 1966 there were the congressional hearings and what leads to the Condon report and the whole swamp gas, and we'll, we'll probably come back to that at some point. But other than that, and I know there were a few small things on like BBC, but it wasn't like. You could turn on the television and at any given time there were six different ghost shows or three different channels that entirely only sh- show paranormal stuff, which is where we are now. You know, like the Travel Channel, Destination America and History Channel, uh, just saying that it's really depressing. But um, y- this is this is it. This is where it begins in our in essence, this is where it begins um, in search of ancient astronauts. And we're going to get to where we are, where we're going to get to what we're doing. But let's just set this up. Sure. In Search of Ancient Astronauts was a one-hour special that – well, Blake, you know this part more, that it was repurposed.
2: Yeah. So so what it actually is is there was a book uh, called Chariots of the Gods written by Eric Von Daniken. And it was actually not called Chariots of the Gods in its original language. It was called – uh, we Remember the Future or something like yes. that. Yeah. yeah,
3: In the original yeah. German, because um, yeah. uh, he's Swiss, if I remember correctly, yeah. uh, yeah. Danikin. Uh, and so it's written in German a few years earlier, but I believe it's 1968, I think, mm-hmm. that Chariots
2: of the Gods is published in English. And then, so in 1970, a West German documentary is made by a, a director called Harold, I believe it's pronounced Reinald. Um, and it's based on The Chariots of the Gods book. And it has an English language release, and it's extremely popular. It's the ninth highest grossing film of 1970. Now think about I want about
3: you that. all to think about that yeah. first. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean – A documentary. Uh, about ancient astronauts. First of all, a documentary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and also, as you're going to hear, this is not video. So just imagine that each of us have a thousand hands – and each of the 500 hands on our left and each of the 500 hands on our right are air quoting yes. around documentary. <laughs> <That's not>
2: documentary.
3: <laughs> we'll get back to that. But uh, it, it, it was
2: produced, uh, it, and basically what that film is is uh, a, about a 90-minute uh, excursion all over the world with multiple film, film crews looking into the... Uh, well, no, no. Let me not even say that. Regurgitating... The content of Eric yeah, it's, a, it's, an a,
3: it's an adaptation of *Chariots of the Gods*. Right, so right, yeah. this was then repurposed in America,
2: right? So they didn't want to run the uh, full documentary, so they they trimmed it down, replaced the narrator from the movie with uh, the voice of credibility and mystery,
3: Rod Serling. Right. So this is near the end of Rod Serling's career and near the end of Rod Serling's life, and I'm just going to put this out here as a um, a note. Uh, I'm from Binghamton, New York which is Rod Serling's hometown. And he is our biggest celebrity. Like like there's a significant like Rod Serling. There's the, the Rod Serling Theater. When I went to high school, it was the Helen Foley uh, Auditorium. I think there's now a Helen Foley uh, School of Art. That was his teacher at, that inspired him. And he always talked about her. And in fact, in the episode where they, the Billy or whatever his name is, puts the, the people in the cornfield, the the, uh, the Twilight Zone. What is it called? Is a good life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good life, something like this. Now it's a wonderful life. But yeah, that episode, there's a there is a teacher that comes to town, or it comes to the farm, and that's based on her. And I don't remember if in the original episode they call her Helen Foley. In the movie which adapts that that episode, they do. And it may be in the original show. I'd have to I'd have to go look at that. And I'm sure someone can tell us. But so I have to put that out there. I'm also from the Twilight Zone. You know. <laughs> Because Serling talked about Binghamton being a a sort of inspiration and several of the stories were set there in a sense. Not quite because they're more generic than that or more broad than that. Um, But uh, Alan Landsberg came to Rod Serling with this. And again, I'm I'm pulling from memory off of reading Jason's uh, Cult of Alien Gods. Um, And the thing that sold him – was the Nazca lines, and again, I don't want to get into the context. I do want to talk about what the show is, but this is this is a weird episode. I apologize in advance.
2: Now, this will not uh, be our standard format, but that no, this, this is so stick we're, with we're
3: introducing ourselves and the show because this is starts with a weird pilot. But apparently, according to Jason, the thing that pulled Serling over was the Nazca lines because Serling had been a paratrooper, and so he kn- knew about seeing stuff from the air, and so the whole concept of the Nazca lines being seen from the air intrigued him. And Jason also suggests that Serling clearly knew Lovecraft. He was clearly – I don't know about a Lovecraft fan but someone who knew his material because several Lovecraft stories got their first real multimedia telling in a night gallery. Absolutely. yep. The yep. the uh, the follow-up to The Twilight Zone that was more horror-based uh, and I think it was longer. I, I, I can't recall. They were hour-long
2: episodes. Yeah. They were hour-long, yeah. yeah.
3: They are hour-long. So they're little mini-movies. That all had a painting, and we'll come back to that in another episode of this show. Yeah,
2: we will. We will. Because, wow. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't see that coming. So Serling does this episode. And we will probably come back to the other specials, because there were about three or four. But the success of this one with Serling as narrator—now note— Unlike the later in search of certainly or unlike Twilight Zone, which is weird. They didn't do this. Serling in this episode, at least, or this movie, at least, does not show up on camera. Nor is there, he the writer. Yeah, there is no like for your consideration with him with a cigarette like that. That doesn't occur. You'd expect it, but it doesn't happen, which is, of course, exactly not with the cigarette, but exactly what we do see with Leonard Nimoy in what becomes in search of. So there are several of these one hour documentary specials in search of ancient astronauts, in search of this, in search of that. And then they create the television show in search of, but by that time, Serling's health had declined. And I'm pretty sure I'm looking it up. So I'm going to leave the typing sound in. Uh, yes, he dies on June 28th, 1975. At the age of uh, 50 uh, I did not know he was born on Christmas Very uh, Isaac Newton he, he dies and so they go to another voice Of sort of scientific credibility Mr. Spock Leonard Nimoy
2: Right, that interesting That, that mix of uh, uh, Far out space possibilities And, and logic and reason he, he brings his own gravitas Right,
3: and, and so that gets to what this show is going to be I was a huge fan of that show when I was a kid, and it probably helped bring me to where I am today. Blake, I don't know about you.
2: Oh, I was a huge fan, and at, 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 it was one of those shows. Now, I watched it uh, in syndication, but, but but not on the uh, – what was it um – a uh, and E, I think, picked it up and carried it later. But I, I, I watched it in the 1970s in syndication, so it would come on in the afternoons at kind of strange times. But I would just be delighted every time I caught an episode. Yeah,
3: I think mine was on at night. Like I've, I have a memory of watching it. I mean, like this show, we're talking. I'm not even 10. Like I'm young when this is shown, and and Blake is too. Like this is this is our childhood. Uh, I don't know if it was an in indication or if it was first run. I think it, for me, it may have been the first run at night, um, but I am sure this was a major influence on both of us. Oh sure, yeah. Making terrible decisions with our lives to talk about monsters and archaeology <laughs> and spookiness and all of that. Um, and in fact, uh, in the 2016 volume I edited, uh, "Lost City, Found Pyramid" with David Anderson. Uh, I did in the acknowledgments because Leonard Nimoy had just passed when we were finishing it up. I actually thanked him, uh, you know, because I don't think that I would be there without him. That's not necessarily a good thing, and we're going to talk about that. Um, so, what this show is going to be is in research of, we want to talk about each of the episodes of In Search of, because honestly, I don't know a Gen X. Person into all of these weird things who does not usually start with oh how did you get into this like you listen to a podcast or an interview well how did you get into this and almost always the answer is well as a kid I watched a lot of In Search of
2: yeah yeah and this yeah, is that, uh, this is almost universally true in the sort of paranormal themed podcasts uh, yes. and and, and uh, because those those stories come up again and again and yeah. I suspect. Um, if we, uh, as we go through these episodes, if we end up bringing any experts in, that will also universally be true. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, I just, uh, it has been a, a huge cultural influence. Whether that's good or bad, I think is
3: worth well, a lot of conversation. But <laughs> we want, to, we want to talk about that. And so that's gonna be the thing. We're not just gonna say, oh, we're gonna watch it. We're gonna, you know, talk about what the episode's about. We're gonna do that. But the in research of is important because we want to talk about. So we don't don't want to spoil some upcoming episodes, but we've watched a few of the early episodes now, again, for the first time in a long while. And there's a lot more backstory to some of these people than the show led on. So first of all, there's that. We want to talk about that. And secondly, what's happened since? I mean, these are 40 years old. And you're like, well, why are we talking about a thing that's 40 years old? Well, because in reality, this is the beginning of paranormal television. There is not paranormal television before this. And it is the model for paranormal television really until the mid to late 2000s when reality TV kind of takes over and you get, you know, angry guys in black t shirts yelling at demons. Yes. And we'll, we may talk more about that. What's interesting, and I think we're going to get into this, this. Episode or this special is not only the beginning of paranormal television in pretty much every respect, for good or bad. And I would generally say, no, oh, we'll leave that alone. We'll come back to that. But it is almost beat for beat equivalent to the 2009 History Channel special documentary that led to Ancient Aliens. Yeah, like it's it, it is so similar. Which, given that that show was a 40-year retrospective for Chariots of the Gods and Eric Von Daniken...
2: And and, and Eric's not gone. He's still out there fighting the bad fight, so...
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, just, he just was at Alien Con, the History Channel, A E, whatever-inspired thing in, in California. So that's going to be kind of our mission, is, look, we we clearly liked this show as kids. It clearly was a huge impact on us and a lot of other people. We are going to sort of take you through... But we kind of want to talk about the context of these shows, what has come since, and sort of other points about the larger things that they speak to.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, we were inspired by things like the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Oh yeah, huge, huge yeah, inspiration yeah. from yeah. them. The, the the whole idea of doing an episode walkthrough of uh, of a series. Yeah. Um, I, I, that that idea has been done uh, quite a few times. I was actually surprised not to see one like this. But yeah. even if there were one, I don't think good. there's going to be like what well, uh, Jeb and I'll be able to pull off here. So
3: yeah. So so th- I think probably the two biggest inspirations on us podcast wise are one the H P Lovecraft literary podcast with Chad Pfeiffer and Chris Lackey, and then Chris Lackey and his wife Rachel Lackey then did the show, or Rachel watches Star Trek where they're watching. They're almost done with the original series, yeah. and I suspect they're going to go through, given that they've been on BBC America and whatnot. And so we might have a rating at the end of the episode that we might have um, um, mildly uh, stolen from uh, them. But no, these are, I would say, two inspirations. And then I would probably say the, the other one, another one would be Jason. Jason Colavito, he doesn't podcast, but he he, he routinely rides into the gates of hell. Uh, and reports on all of these shows in detail and reviews them. And again, we're not going to get to that level of detail. We're not no. doing quite the same thing. But I would I would credit all of them because here's the thing, folks. Citation is free. Regret is not. But we would cite, I'd say, all three of those as intellectual kind of uh, ancestors to this.
2: Absolutely. And um, I, I think if you can get through this episode, uh, you'll enjoy – the show. I think uh, we're going to have some really interesting take on the content. Yeah. One of the things that's missing uh, in the in the actual content of this narrative is any kind of real examination of anything. It's again, they are basically regurgitating the material in Von Däniken's book, yeah. not commenting on it. Right?
3: Yeah. This is this. Uh, we we apologize for something that's not out of our it's out of our control. We're going to address this show, and we're going to say things about it. It is this this episode or whatever this thing is, is special, not ours, but theirs, the In Search of Ancient Astronauts 1972, is not representative of In Search of. No. So not only is it not just there's there's Surly instead of Nimoy, like Nimoy's on screen. It's it's a much more compact, first of all, it's a half hour versus an hour. There's not the weird synth music that you're looking for. Uh, none of the, you know, you don't get that. It doesn't, like, if you didn't know that this was related to In Search Of, it would actually be hard to connect them. But we did want to talk about this. But our next episode, we will be getting into the show. We may, again, revisit some of the Serling specials beforehand as kind of special episodes so don't take this as a normal episode of in research of uh, I, be,
2: I do another podcast called monster talk and if you're coming to this show from there hey that's <laughs> but uh we're planning on doing a, a a sort of a deep dive into uh how in search of came to be and that yes. will be a full hour of nothing but the history of how in search of came to be and what its cultural impact was yeah it will not be as uh, it it won't be like this. It's going to be a different thing. So yes. if you've heard that, this is different. And if yes. you, if you're hearing this and you want to check out Monster Talk, this is a different show. There'll be a link in the show notes. So um, they're they're going to have quite a different take. But, all
3: right. So uh, all I think we've said, I think we've done enough intro. I think yeah. we've done enough intro. So let's let's, let's get, into get into. The In Search of Ancient Astronauts. We've got our show notes here in front of us. Uh, We've both watched this multiple times. Yep. Um, I will say watching it the second time on double speed was a very smart move.
2: (laughs) There's some good... uh, You know, also, we'll put a link in the show notes uh, to a good copy of this. There's a visually great copy of this on archive.org, which looks... It's got great color for what it is. There's one on YouTube that's got better sound, but the picture's not that great. So... Uh, I don't
3: know. I, I didn't mind it. Like, was that the one you talked about being red?
2: Yeah. Well, no, no. No,
3: because it didn't I, seem red. I it's had just, a DVD like, that I bought
2: online. Uh, oh. And, uh, and it was okay. red shifted to the point of it looked like I had on uh, Cyclops' glasses.
3: <laughs> it was like, got, oh, <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Okay.
2: Um, that was an X-Men s- joke. Okay. Yes.
3: So, so all right. So, in in, in search of, of ancient astronauts. TV got entry.
2: September 6th, 1973. By the way, this is the repeat entry. In Search of Ancient Astronauts, documentary, special. Were the ancient gods actually astronauts? In his book, Chariots of the Gods, Eric Von Daniken claims that extraterrestrial beings visited the Earth centuries ago. This 1972 documentary reviews Von Daniken's evidence. Ancient carvings in Africa, Italy, and South America resembling men in spacesuits. Indian writings and biblical passages he interpreted as references to rocket blast-offs, Mayan pyramids revealing a vast astronomical knowledge, and a series of roads on Peru's plains of Nazca that lead nowhere and could perhaps have served as an airfield. The program also examines the theory that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by an atomic blast. Repeat, 60 minutes.
3: (laughs) All right. That does cover a lot of the stuff. That is – that is. well, what's interesting, and I think this is actually one of the things we want to talk about because it actually doesn't open as much on the astronaut – or on the ancient astronauts. What that doesn't talk about is how much the show is situated in its time of space exploration. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this is while humans are going to the moon. Like the the final mission, Apollo 17 – is after this. So this is near the end of the Apollo program and while today we look at that period of oh things didn't really kind of keep going at the time there was we're going to do this and we're going to have a space station we're going to go to Mars and all that and we do have a space station but you know I don't want to get into the whole history of NASA but it opens with talking to exobiologists like Harold P Klein, Dr. Harold P Klein of NASA's Ames Research Center who was one of the major people that before In Search of the Television Show would air, but after this would be involved with the Viking landings on Mars. And at the end of In Search of Ancient Astronauts, they actually talk about earlier probes to Mars and they get Carl Sagan. Like Carl Sagan's up in this business. Yeah. And we'll talk more about what he says later. I think, I think we'll readdress what he says later. I think we'll talk, there should be an ending thing. You know who also shows up in this? Who? Werner von Brown. Yes. Werner von <laughs> Pinamunda slave labor v two rockets then helps take America to the moon. Brown. And I don't think that's an unfair compilation. Uh, incredible rocket pioneer, but did work with the Nazis. It is important to sort of paperclip him onto this, though. Yes, absolutely. He is, he is one of the trophies of Operation Paperclip, of, of grabbing, I mean, he, you know, the turning over engines and literal V2s and whatnot. I mean, this is the beginning of America's space program. Uh, he's in this. Uh, Harold Klein, who I had heard of, is in this. Carl Sagan's in this. So this is something I really want to note. These are... N- People that I don't think would show up on ancient aliens. I wonder how much they knew. I mean, clearly Sagan knew what was going on, but I don't know. Well, yeah, because Sagan, we'll come back to what he thinks about all this, but it is worth noting Carl Sagan was one of the earliest academics to actually seriously consider an ancient astronauts or ancient aliens. So let's let's just get that out of the way. Because there were astronauts going to the moon – this was called the ancient astronauts theory or concept back then. Today, it's ancient aliens, I think, for two reasons. One, this is a TV show. And two, we don't think about astronauts as much as we used to.
2: Right. At the time, it, 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 like, to, to just kind of set this, uh, meeting an astronaut it was like meeting a rock star. Right. And yeah. we, we also don't really have rock stars anymore. Well, there's that too. Yeah. Pop stars, Okay, let me rephrase that. Yeah. Meeting an astronaut was like meeting a, a really uh, important uh, Instagram influencer.
3: Okay. I thought that's what you were going to say. Yeah. <laughs> and and then I didn't injure myself and I hold my will well because, yeah, that's where we are now. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like meeting Justin Bieber. It's just like that. So. It, it, am, it is important. I, am I mean, so. Not self harming right now. Culture
2: changes. <laughs> but the, the reason they're there is to provide the rest of the, the movie with the gravitas of look, you know, here is a uh, representative of uh, a human accomplishment, uh, science, authority, uh, all things that seem to have lost cultural value.
3: Well, and I will <laughs> say this I will say this as we're going to see in the actual show in search of, there is a massive tonal difference between it, not this episode, but well, to some degree this episode, but definitely the full show with Nimoy that we're going to see and we're going to listen to and say ancient aliens or other paranormal things today of a hopeful, exploratory versus, dark conspiratorial perspective. We live in a very different place now and we will, we will come back to this point. So on the one hand, I wasn't hundred percent surprised they had real scientists. I will say when they were like Werner von Braun, I'm like, wait, are they going to really put him on? Oh my God, he's on screen. That's happening. And, and I wasn't hundred percent surprised by Sagan. So the, I guess the closest today you might find, I don't know if Michio Kaku ever showed up on ancient aliens He's obviously been a lot on Coast to Coast. I wouldn't be surprised if he was on Ancient Aliens, and there have been a few other serious scientists on Ancient Aliens, but it's not like what we're talking about here. This would be literally bringing out your stellar public names. This would be like, hey, Stephen Hawking, before he died, and after it would be more interesting, uh, and Neil deGrasse Tyson on Ancient Aliens. That would be like what what what's happening in this episode.
2: All right, let's yeah, let's get to the tech. Let's get to the weird stuff. The first weird thing in my notes was the Baghdad Battery. This is really funny to me because as we go through this series, we're going to run into these things that are going to be recurring themes. If you had a drinking game for ancient aliens, um yeah. uh, I think one of them would be if people said some believe. If the narrator says some believe, that that's take a drink and then you'll certainly be an alcoholic within a couple an- of
3: Another minutes. one I would say would be Puma Punku. That's a good one. Yeah, um, we'll come back to that.
2: But yes. but but the Baghdad Battery. Oh boy, uh, is uh, is just an absolute classic of ancient alien and ancient astronauts. Uh, so uh, I have seen it a, a bazillion times on television, uh, and I, I guess the short version of it is theoretically it's well, it is a it was. Uh, we don't. I don't know if it still exists or it was just.
3: It was looted in 2003 during the looting of the Baghdad Museum, founded by. Gertrude Bell. But it was stolen. It was one of the things was looted in 2003.
2: So probably in some uh, high-tech entrepreneur's uh, personal collection now.
3: Or I can think of a number of places it might be. So the Baghdad Battery was a ceramic vessel. Now, I'm going to put this out there. I talked earlier about being an archaeologist, which I am. However, the Middle East is not my primary thing i do have a handful of cuneiform tablets and whatnot but won't get into that but no it's in our special collections at the library but i am not a specialist in this area so i that has to be remembered i i am a i'm a specialist in central america mesoamerica the maya Spooky archaeology and a few other things, and, I, and I'm a not... specialist
2: in computer tech, uh, monsters, and puns. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So,
3: <laughs> but it's 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 basically uh, a small urn. I would say about the size. It's a little bigger than a twelve ounce can, but not a lot. Like it's it's something you would hold in your hand, and it it had inside it a copper tube, yeah, a thin copper tube and a rod of iron inside of that. And it was found in Iraq, and it's late. They call it the, the Baghdad Battery, and that's fair, but that's because more of the Baghdad Museum. It's it's basically Roman era, more or less. That's old. It's quite old. But uh, in the 1930s, Wilhelm Koenig, uh, who was involved with the National Museum of Iraq, there's a lot of history of Germans as well as English in Iraq because it's important for controlling that region as part of the, – well, the great games, Afghanistan, but you get the idea. And he looked at it and at that time wondered, could it have been used for electroplating gold? Because he was aware of objects covered in gold and he thought if you put uh, a sort of um, – would it be like a light acid, like a lime juice or something like that in it? it would function as a battery. Kind of like like the potato batteries that you you get. Yeah, yeah. And and that idea kind of propagated and it has become a standard of alternative archaeologies. Now, other vessels like this have been found and a lot have been considered to be containers for scrolls, that this was in essence the protective covering for a book, if you want to think of it that way.
2: But not uh, not this incredible innovation of a scroll container that also can provide you <laughs> with an electric reading light. <laughs> they would not think it was a battery.
3: They would not right. think ba- they, or they would not think it's a scroll protector. They would think it's a battery. All of these various folks, and that's how it's being presented c- quickly. Like they don't spend a lot of time on it. No, no, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important don't... to
2: remember that we're looking at a scaled down version of of a, a longer documentary, which itself is essentially like. Uh, just a series of assertions like over and over and over again look at this weird mystery look at this weird mystery look at yeah. this weird mystery you know
3: and as we'll mm-hmm. see turns out somebody should have bought them a map yeah so there's this idea that this thing is is a battery and what's interesting and I did not know this part of the show I need to go back and find this one dr kenneth fader A favorite friend of the the show monster talk (laughs) and I have been on in the past the the show archaeological fantasies where he was the one of the two major co-hosts before I came on uh, actually appeared in an episode of MythBusters, where they tried to test this and basically were like this doesn't work like this is you you could kind of do this but it's not really a thing like you could sort of do it a little but they really didn't find it important Yet on ancient aliens in the 2000s, and the early 2010s, they very much played with the Baghdad battery. And I think they talked about there being fields of big Baghdad batteries, even though there's literally one of these things. And it feels kind of like an accident of preservation.
2: Yeah, and it, it, they go a little further in modern docs uh, around this material and, and imply that not only was it a battery, but that they had developed electroplating. And that we probably should go through all the museums of the world and look at gold objects, which may in fact just be electroplated. Uh, this is, of course, absurd uh, on many levels, but, but uh, you don't need to start scratching up uh, artifacts to find out whether or not they're made of gold. It turns out that people have been able to assess the density of items and figure out whether they're actually made of gold a long, long time.
3: Not only that, not only that, there are various ways you can plate things with gold that are not entirely gold. Um, you can use chemical plating. Uh, my favorite of this is not in the old world, but in the new world, in northern Peru at the Muche or the Mochique of the first millennium CE, where they would mix alloys of gold, silver, and other metals, but they would get gold surfaces in part because gold doesn't corrode. So if you put certain kinds of substances, possibly involving urine, onto mixes, you can you can corrode away everything but gold. And they were master metallurgists. So you don't need a battery that doesn't actually seem to be a battery, but they start with the, the Baghdad battery. That's, that's where they begin it again. It unfortunately has been looted since that time. But I think probably what's most important after that is they cut to a fairly extended sequence of the concept of cargo cults. Blake, do you do you want to kind of chime in on this one?
2: You know, the first place I encountered the idea of cargo cults was in writing by Richard Feynman, the physicist. And he was talking about uh, something he talked about as cargo cult science, where you are – Looking at something as in, I guess it's what Sharon Hill would call it being scientifical. You're, you're trying to emulate science, but not actually doing science. And the reason they call it cargo cult is because, uh, uh, I guess during the Pacific battles of World War II, uh, you had all these people coming in and building landing strips for airplanes and bringing in all these fabulous items of cargo and the locals, didn't fully understand uh, this is the story I'm, I'm not saying this is true but the story is that the locals didn't understand what was happening and believed that that just by rebuilding runways and and creating airplanes out of wood and other materials that they could lure back the gods of cargo, and there's also a, uh, a sort of a cult around a guy named John Fromm, as in I'm, I'm John from Alabama. But 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 here they're they're showing a, a runway with a fake airplane and people sort of gathered around praying that people will bring cargo from the sky. Um, and in that sequence,
3: there is some truth to this. Yeah, they're yeah, showing yeah. people like like reverently, you know, looking at these and pointing at the sky. There is some truth. The notion of cargo cults is older. In fact, the John Fromm uh, religion begins before World War II. Nice. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's earlier than that. And the reality is that there is some truth to some of this. The idea that in Melanesia and elsewhere in the Pacific, outside images get incorporated into local spirituality. At the same time, a lot of this has to do with missionization A lot of this has to do with larger, larger aspects of colonialism. But ancient astronauts, people love this idea. They do. Basically, Uh, what it allows is, oh, this is made by the local people, but it's an image of something else. Because here's the thing. If there was a machine made of unobtainium that's chemically from zeta reticuli 2 – light years away found in Peru. Well, then we're really talking about ancient aliens, but if it's, Oh, here's an image of a thing that might be a butterfly, but actually I'm saying it's a spaceship in a painting that's made clearly by local people. Well, then the cargo cult idea becomes very, very important because it allows you to say, well, yes, the local people made this. And yes, they said that they're gods, but they said that they're gods where people came from the sky, and I actually think that those are aliens. And, and Cargo Cult really features in, in Von Daniken as a result.
2: It, it's interesting, uh, I just want to throw this out there, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, the impact of this on the ancient aliens shows going forward, and not just the show Ancient Aliens, but the, the whole uh, part of our culture that really likes this idea of ancient astronauts or, or, or received uh, knowledge, if you will. It, what bothers me about Cargo cults is, I've always been suspicious that there is yet another subtext to this where people say, look at those locals. They're so primitive and superstitious. They think this is how you get stuff. Aren't they dumb? Ha ha ha.
3: Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. and, And I don't, I'm just very suspicious that, that, that that's not really all that's going on with cargo cults. That's just our interpretation. Which no, I again, think it is. Yeah, yeah.
3: So. I think it is. I mean, and one that's going to come up repeatedly in in search of ancient aliens is the idea of of light skinned outsiders. Yes. Well, that's that's a colonial myth. A lot of these things have to deal with the impact of colonialism. And what cargo cults remind me of, to a large extent, uh, Anthony Wallace was a um, student of religion, anthropology, et cetera. And he is most famous for his creation of the idea of revitalization movements. And revitalization movements are new religions that meld indigenous – in colonial contexts, indigenous religions with aspects of colonial religions and worldviews, often with a visionary and apocalyptic aspect And then these religions go on and actually become full-on religious movements. And cargo cults remind me of this. So the sort of pop culture idea is, oh, a bunch of U.S. servicemen go on an island and then they start making models of airplanes. People locally start making models of airplanes because they don't understand any of this technological society. I largely suspect that a fair amount of this is missing decades of earlier colonial conditioning and interaction. And that doesn't rule it out as a model for ancient aliens or ancient astronauts, but that needs to be taken into consideration that a lot of this, I think, is Westerners thinking about this in ways that make them look kind of amazing.
2: Yes. Now, are there there any sort of um, pop culture examples where we could – see what it might look like if a, a futuristic culture Well,
3: the one I don't like this movie yes. it's <laughs> probably the only part of this movie I like is the <sighs> the Kelvin timeline of Star Trek the, <laughs> the the J.J. Abrams episodes of Star Trek or movies of Star Trek I don't like any of these movies although the last one is actually more Star Trekky, but the first one I don't like for reasons the second one into Darkness, Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah, where they make the really bad decision of trying to touch the cultural lodestone of Wrath of Khan. But the first ten minutes, our intrepid heroes, in actually a very Star Trekky fashion, save a bunch of primitive people on a planet that's going to be destroyed by a volcano. And in doing so, in order to save Spock from dying in the volcano, they have to reveal the Enterprise, and the Enterprise becomes the center of worship. And this is all about the Prime Directive, and this is very cheeky, but it's very good because Ancient Astronauts, Ancient Aliens was a major theme of Star Trek. There are numerous episodes in the original series that are about that, that are very much about that idea. So that's actually very appropriate. And the planet they're visiting is the planet Nibiru. And that's an episode by itself. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. We're leaving that one alone. But let's just, let's just say the fact that they made sure that you knew as a the planet Nibiru. I am sure they meant it as an inside joke, but oh, my God. So they, a lot of time is spent in the episode of In, in Search of Ancient Astronauts, or the, the special, on, on cargo cults. Once they get past the cargo cults, it moves into my part of the world. That's right. This is exciting. I knew when I was watching this part. I bet we're
2: going to have a lot to hear about this because. Uh, the, 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 oh the, and, yeah. Well, and here's the thing. I I, I haven't seen anybody like really address this stuff uh, with the expertise behind it so here we go this is what's going to make this show gold um
3: don't do that <laughs> don't don't and absolutely leave this in the show don't raise those expectations well, that's bad it's a well, bad so, choice so let's start, no but they go well, they so they go I, into mesoamerica yeah they, they go they into mexico yes so and again leave that all in well but, the um, olmec heads
2: so like let's that's that's i they, mean, uh,
3: Yeah, they they start showing various objects, mostly monumental stone, which I think is important, and I don't want to get too deep into this theory, but basically monumental stone images are a thing of states, a thing of state societies. like, oh, look, there's a 40-foot tall statue of a dude. I think we're dealing with a state society. And that's not in a good way because it's usually about hubris and having too much power in a very small set of hands. But enough about that huge uh, problem. They show an Olmec head. They show various images from Teotihuacan, uh, the classic period imperial city in central Mexico. And they they flip back and forth. And it's kind of hard to talk about this because they throw – tiwanaku which is in south america in it's way far away that'd be like and now we're going to talk about english civilization and by english let's show you the city of baghdad i mean it's, (laughs) it's it's that level of distance and and this is not unusual because in reality people very much have a maya azteca inca view where everything south of the rio grande that's impressive is all one thing and, and and we'll we'll run into that again and again, both uh, in in search of and ancient aliens and and in other shows, but they they kind of quickly warp through all of this, and we'll come back to the errors bit. But this is where they introduce the inspiration for all of this, Eric Von Daniken. Yay! And I, <laughs> and I believe I believe the quote is. The mind of a scientist and the soul of a romantic.
1: Eric von Donneken, a German professor possessed of the mind of a scientist and the imagination of a romantic.
2: And the criminal record of a con artist.
3: Yeah, they don't (laughs) – well, I'm not going to call him a con artist. I will call him an embezzler because he was convicted and went to jail for that. And eventually, he – long story short, uh, he was convicted for – he was a hotel clerk in Switzerland – Uh, embezzled a lot of money according to the court finding against him so he could go around to various sites around the world not going to call that vacation because i'm you know we all have our our sins that became his research for uh chariots of the gods he did go to prison for that but then when Chariots of the Gods made a lot of money, he was able to to pay back restitution and and then got out and then became an international celebrity.
2: So he reformed himself into a
3: cultural anarchist. Yeah, uh, well into something. Yeah. <laughs> uh I, I, I may have other words and we'll come back to Sagan's take on this. But they they do introduce him at this point and and they throw in for a bit Piri Reesmap. I don't know if they call it that, but they're like. In a, I, I can't do a good Serling. I might be able to do a Nimoy. I can't really do a Serling. But in a, in a monastery
1: in Istanbul. Here stands the Palace of Topkapi. A curious set of maps are kept here, which were found in the Orient by the Turkish Admiral Piri Reis.
3: They go and, and they look at the Piri Reis map, which is a uh, colonial period map that most historical experts look at, it's like, this is a map of South America, an extension of South America, but in the 1900s, in the, in the 20th century, I want to say in the 50s, it gets turned into a map of Antarctica. Yes. And not, and not only Antarctica, but Antarctica with the ice missing.
2: Right. And so this, like, is a, this
3: is not ancient astronauts,
2: but uh, it becomes a Graham Hancock.
3: Well, uh, it, it's yeah. it's kind of all of the above, because yeah. some are like, oh, the only way you could do this would be to be in orbit. And well, other, yeah, no, it is part of ancient astronauts as well as like a Graham Hancock super. I just mean Graham Hancock
2: himself tries to distance himself from ancient astronauts. I, I, I assume he's constantly refining his message.
3: He he very much. I'm I'm actually working on a thing later today about this. He very much um, does not talk about aliens from outer space. On the other hand, he very much ropes in um, alien abductions, but not as aliens as spirits from the other realm. That's beyond this episode, so we'll leave this alone.
2: Yep. Uh, this good.
3: might come up later. They go into the Piri-Reese map, and, and that's the thing. This, this, this show jumps all over the place. It does. They go into, they go into the Piri-Reese map and try to argue, and my favorite part is there's a section that looks like Antarctica, and you realize that's not the Piri-Reese map. That's a later map. So there is a bit of sleight of hand here where they are they are kind of mixing these things. So they go into the Piri Reese map for a bit. It's kind of puzzling. And honestly, if you didn't know the backstory here, you'd almost be like, what are they talking about? But then they get to kind of the meat of the business and go back to Mesoamerica. They go back to Mesoamerica and they go to Teotihuacan, which is an incredibly important place. It, it does mean in Nahuatl, the language of the later Aztecs and Naztec's not what they call themselves. They call themselves Mexica or Mexica. Um, The city of the gods or the city or the place where men became gods or the city where God, it's something along those lines, but it's pretty obvious what it means. You know, it's a city of the gods and Teotihuacan gets its start uh, in the late part of the first millennium BCE. So, it really gets a jumpstart around 50 BCE or BC. Those are the same thing, but there's different reasons, uh, and becomes this massive metropolis, this grid city, like has blocks, like 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 you know, think of Manhattan, with with uh, north, south, east, west. They're all 11 degrees east of north, if I remember correctly, for reasons that tie to the valley. But that becomes a signature of Teotihuacan. Uh, there's the massive Avenue of the Dead, which is anchored by two pyramids, the Pyramid of the Moon and the Pyramid of the Sun. And I just want to point out, in the episode, in In Search of Ancient Astronauts, they talk a lot about the Pyramid of the Sun while pointing the camera at the Pyramid of the Moon from the Pyramid of the Sun. I get the feeling, and we'll talk about why this is, if you're old enough to remember... All your base belong to us. <laughs> I am, which, but <laughs> which which was kind of making fun of how in the 80s and 90s there were many really good video games from Japan that were then translated into English poorly. Yes, the fact that this is an adaptation of a German film in this section in particular, I think becomes important because there are many many errors, and I think some of them are in fact from. They are errors in – they are lost in translation. Uh, but Tantihuacan, the real city, its its population, it, the highest estimates are 250,000 people. Uh, I've seen that largely rolled back to about half that, to about 125,000, which still would have made it one of the largest cities on earth at that time. There were 2,200 apartment compounds that housed between 40 and 100 people. It was a major player. It, at one point, it appears to have been at least somewhat imperialist, controlling a good chunk of the Maya realm to the east – and we might talk about that in a future episode. But the episode sells it as the heart of the Aztec civilization. And there are like about five things wrong with that. The word Aztec is emphasized in the 19th century. It comes from – Tech means people of or ek means people of like Olmec, Aztec, Mixtec, Wastec in the Nahuatl language of the Mexica, the triple alliance in the 15th century right before the Spaniards get there, and then the Spaniards meet them, Moctezuma, Montezuma as you know him, all of that. The Triple Alliance is centered in Tenochtitlan, and they and other Nahuatl speakers say they came from Aztlan, a place to the north. So when they're talking about their ancestors, they refer to them as Aztec, people from Aztlan. But in later times, they'd be Mexica. But in 19th century scholarship, there was... An emphasis on trying to de-emphasize Mexicans because racism so Aztec sounds more awesome to people and the name has kind of stuck but regardless that term if you're using it for that purpose refers to people of the 14th 15th century Teotihuacan had been dead for a thousand years or 800 years Not dead. There were about 15,000, 20,000 people that continued to live in Teotihuacan, but it was not an imperial center anymore. You know, Rome continued to be a city, but in the Middle Ages, it's not the heart of an empire. It's very similar to that, actually, and very contemporaneous. I mean, Teotihuacan at its height is about the same time as Rome. So they, they look at various structures at Teotihuacan, including the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, which they invoke repeatedly in In Search of Ancient Astronauts. Because a myth emerges in the colonial period that the feathered serpent figure, Quetzalcoatl, or a king using his name at the city of Tula, and we'll talk about that in a minute, was light-skinned and bearded. Which fits into a Spanish colonial ideal that they were taken as gods. And you can see the obvious political value of this. But right,
2: that's the story that we always hear as he weaves, And you I mean,
3: absolutely hear it in this episode. Yeah,
2: yeah. That 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 the when the Spanish arrived, there was a pre existing mythology around light skinned people and, and that's it, not
3: a thing. That's and, not a thing. Yeah.
2: And that that's the myth, right? Yeah. So
3: well no, it's not a myth. It's it's I would call the falsehood. Um, oh, I'm sorry, it's a, a
2: Spanish colonial myth or a Spanish colonial lie that has now become a myth.
3: Yeah, 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 it's a myth now, um because it does explain things. It's is just, it propaganda? Just, I mean, how did it where did it come from? Uh, that's really complicated. Ken and I have gone round and round on this and there are people who have written about this and it's hard to talk about. Like there is some evidence. There is some real evidence. I will say this. That some Mesoamericans when they met Spaniards did associate them with divine entities like gods. And Moctezuma, the emperor of the Triple Alliance, may have done this. There were others that absolutely were like, no, these are people. These are absolutely people. Uh, but there may have been some. But it wasn't because of light skin or anything like that. It was because they were strange and weird and came from a different place. Yeah,
2: I, I, I'm actually a little bit sympathetic with the Spanish on this because I have to deal with that same kind of thing all the time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> being weird and treated like a oh, god. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No one, no one, I'm weird, but no one considers me a god. So... Uh, but, but no, this idea propagates in, in the colonial period very quickly, very, very quickly. Um, the idea that Cortez was taken as a God when De Soto goes into La Florida, which part of it is Florida, but the rest is the Southeastern U S they play on that idea. Like this became almost immediately like, Oh, here's how you do it. You set yourself up as a God and then you take their emperor or their King prisoner and you do the things. This is all based on Cortez. In 1519 to 1521, there is some evidence that they were seen as at least weird and divine horses were pretty baffling to them. Uh, I will say that. They were seen as big deer, but then there was also the, are they joined? Are they a centaur?
2: I know. you so, got to think about this. I mean, for for their culture to see people riding horseback and wearing armor, it's, pretty, it, it's very much like when when you're my age and you go to town now and you see everybody riding electric scooters. It's just like,
3: is that one creature? Is it two? Yeah, What's happening? <laughs> I'm pretty sure though that the Aztecs didn't have as much disdain yeah. as, as at least I would. in the end they did. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm an old man yelling at a cloud at the end they did well they also the, they also have the smallpox but yeah, um but no so this gets brought up repeatedly in in search of ancient astronauts um so this whole section on on mess america is is a mess and it's not just an ancient astronauts ancient aliens bad interpretation mess that is there so they go to the city of tula which is much later than teotihuacan still before the quote-unquote aztecs and the classic, are these headdresses helmets for spaceships? No, no, they're not. It's kind of a form of the earlier Teotihuacan balloon headdress of, of war and the Koha. Are they? They're carrying strange objects. Like, no, that's a spear thrower. They have been depicting spear throwers like that for a thousand years. Like, this is this is, if you know anything about this, this is not mysterious, but of course. And I will point out some of this material archaeologically has come to light since that period. You know, a big part of this has been the decipherment of the Maya hieroglyphic writing system, which had not, it had sort of started when the show aired, but it really had not caught fire yet. It was about to catch fire. So I will give them that. But at the same time, a lot of this was still known, but then never even minding the ancient aliens part. They're just really bad at geography. Like, they're, they're, there's the city of Tula, which is in central Mexico. And they're like, and then nearby, the site of Cenote. It's like, wait, 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 what? I'm sorry. Cenote is a generic word for a sinkhole in Yucatan. It comes from the Maya zonot.
2: Oh, I thought that sounded familiar. Yeah. 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 People go diving in them sometimes. Yes. yes. Yeah.
3: And many s- cities and settlements in Yucatan have them. Uh, basically, quick – I'm not a geologist, but quick geology. Once you get north of the Guatemalan border in, in Yucatan, the states of Yucatan, Quintana Roo, and Campeche, the Yucatan Peninsula is super karstic. It is super limestone. And yes, Kentucky and all these areas have karstic topography, but they still have rivers. Yucatan doesn't. It doesn't have rivers. It doesn't have lakes. All the water immediately percolates down – into the karstic limestone, which means there are huge cave systems, which is amazing. There are huge cave systems everywhere. And ancient and modern Maya people, because I am sure we're going to do an episode where they talk about the disappearance of the Maya. They did not disappear. There are 8 million Maya people today, language speakers and so on. But they would go into these caves. They thought of them as the underworld. They thought of them as the con- the contact place to the other world. Uh, Xibalba, the place of fright, is a watery underworld. Well, Yucatan literally sits on caves full of water, and uh, many of the cities have cenotes. I mean, uh, I I lived for about a month, or you know, was in for about a month. Not lived. That's not right. Uh, in the city of Valladolid, uh, which had several cenotes, like the Tzitnup under it, that are amazing. Like you're in a Latin American city, and there's like this, and there's a parking lot, and then you're like, oh, I'm now in an amazing like cave that looks like something out of Tomb Raider. It's, it's, it's astonishing. All of these cities had it, and the most famous of the cenotes, and this is the one they're talking about, but again, I think because of the all-your-base problem from the German original, the cenote they're talking about is the well of Chuck, the storm god in Maya, at Chichen Itza. Chichen Itza is probably the most important archaeological site in Yucatan, and it literally means Chi mouth Chen well Itza of the Itzas at the mouth of the well of the Itzas. Itzas are a dynasty and a political element. They later move into northern Guatemala in the 16th well by the 16th century, but at one point they have their dynastic seat at Chichen Chen Itza, and one of the major features is the cenote, often known as the well of sacrifice, because they did actually throw stuff and. People in, as Edward Thompson dredged in the early 20th century in an old-timey diving suit. Uh, problems. We'll talk about that maybe another time. But in the show, they're like, "Oh, the site of Cenote." I'm like, "No, that's n- n- no, that's wrong. That's so wrong." And then they continue. Mister Sterling continues to the east in the in the Maya region. There's the city of Chichen Itza. It's like, well, it's Chichen Itza. But secondly, that cenote is literally in the center of it. So yeah, crack research, crack research, research on crack. One or the other.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and, and, the, now you have this knowledge, this this uh, level of expertise in this because it's your academic field. And I've but, been there a few times. And so. they, they when they talk about stuff that I'm you know well read in, I notice a lot of problems. What troubles me is the parts that don't ring untrue. I'm worried that that's just because I'm not an expert in them as well.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and again, one of the most influential things I've ever read on this is the intro to Fraud's Myths and Mysteries by Ken Fader, where he says the exact same thing. Where he liked all this these sorts of things until it got to a section on archaeology. And he's like, well, no, no, that's wrong. And that's wrong. And that, and that, And then he began to realize, oh, probably all of this is wrong. It's just that I know this one part because I know this material but the rest of it I'm a layman so I believe it yeah and and I, I think there's a lot of that a lot of that going on here so they they talk a long time at Chichen and there's a lot of things said about Kukulkan and all this a good chunk of it is wrong they talk about the maya calendar being accurate within one day in 6000 years that's not right the, the Maya various calendars are in very impressive, basically before the Gregorian uh, reforms to the Western calendar, the Mesoamerican calendar, especially the Maya one, are probably the best on Earth, but they, they had their issues, and the Maya knew it. They would change them from time to time. And they talk about observatories before jumping in to Vener von Braun, and we've already talked about that, so I won't revisit it. One part I did want to mention, though, they cite writer and sociologist Eric Huffer. And there's like a long quote about how we are not from here and how we're alien. And I get the feeling this quote is out of out of context. but it's it's also tied into an on-screen interview with Harold Klein, the the NASA the NASA scientist we talked about earlier, where he talks about this idea you hear all the time in UFO and ancient alien circles that Earth is too primitive earth is is not worthy if we meet aliens they will be better and they're more sophisticated i find this idea fascinating it feels like a reaction to the middle of the 20th century it feels like a reaction to nuclear weapons and world war 2 and the holocaust and all these things like like almost a form of self doubt
2: yeah like, you know. w- w- look how destructive we are, you know. It, well, I mean, that, that theme goes back to the, uh, the recurring, uh, sort of new age themes around the contactees, uh, from UFOs. The, the, the idea that, that, hey, you guys, uh, you're in danger of blowing yourselves up. Uh, us, oh, us yeah. space yeah, aliens, yeah. we have the answers. Hey, you guys are ruining the world with pollutants. Us space guys, we've got the answer. This yeah. savior from space is going to not only save us now, but actually Look, it actually gave us all our culture, right? Yeah.
3: So and Again, put, yeah. A, put a pin in that because yeah. we're going to come back to that at the end. Now, we've, you've, you may feel like we've been rambling all over the place That's when the- in reality <laughs> we've been talking about about Mesoamerica and a few other places. At this point – and we're not going to talk about all these. Like we cannot go through every this, single uh, – Yeah, every episode cannot be like this. This is a special. Yeah. But- <laughs> well, not only that. We're not even going to go through the rest of this episode uh-huh. point by point because at this point – in Search of Ancient Astronauts goes everywhere. I think you, you mentioned it being like just, just never-ending talking and never – like 30 seconds here, a minute here. Now we're in the Sahara. Now we're in Italy. Now we're in Australia. It's like
2: ta- the TARDIS is broken and it's just hopping
3: all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and a lot of these are things that have become – staples of ancient aliens. And again, go to Jason Colavito's site. I guarantee you will find uh, debunkings of many of these things. But there's just piece after piece after piece and it's, it's hammering the viewer. And this is where it feels like ancient aliens. So again, I think we said this earlier, this episode does not feel like In Search Of. In Search Of is actually a lot calmer and a lot more, we have one topic, we're covering it, we're going in weird places. They define the
2: whole narrative. It's 22 minutes long. They don't have a lot of time. They bring it, They bring on experts. Uh, they're willing to make mistakes. It's a much more interesting show.
3: Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. This feels a lot like the TV show Ancient Aliens that jumps everywhere. Like, here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing, here's a thing. Here's a thing and... I have heard this called the stratagem of dazzling with BS. Yeah, yeah. Of 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 basically throw everything at your, your, your audience, and See, which some sticks? people, stick. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I I, I I think I think they do that. So we're well, not well, It's a. It, it,
2: it, I guess it would be the documentary version of uh, the Gish Gallop from. Uh,
3: yes. Yeah, yes. So, absolutely.
2: So, so that that's a. Uh, 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 creationism versus evolution, sort of thing. There was a guy named yeah. Dwinkish, I think, uh, who who his his specialty was just to throw out so many assertions that if you want to use rational responses, you can't because it takes a lot longer to explain why something is wrong than it does to just say it.
3: That's What's a, the Mark Twain with uh, the truth get wrong? or the the a lie can go around the world twice while the truth still put his shoes on, basically. Yeah, so, something yeah. like that. Yeah, and not only that. Here's the other thing. A lifetime of experience will tell you the people here will have all of their factoids. And if you don't know theirs, well, then you're wrong. But if you bring in yours, they don't matter. Also, don't debate. Just don't do it. I'm looking at you, uh, science guy. I'm just saying. Yeah, Mister, well, so th- Mr. Knight, this don't show do it. Don't we're, do it.
2: obviously this is our first stab at this, and so it'll probably evolve organically. This is probably the biggest target uh, that we have to try to respond to, but we'll put a lot. I will put a lot of show notes in here. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. So, but, but but here's the. Let me ask this meta question. That'll probably be true for all the sort of episodes as we step through the series. How come your facts? I'm putting air quotes around your facts are somehow better than their facts, air quotes. Like What what makes your information more credible than their pretty pictures and Rod Serling talk?
3: I would say the reason is not because I have a PhD behind my name or any of those things. It's because they throw everything at the screen and they throw things that don't hold up. When professionals in this, th- this is one of the problems. This is why getting professionals on. So, repeatedly in the show, they've got Harold Klein, they've got Carl Sagan, and here's what they say Well, I can't rule it out, but there's no evidence for it. Right there, you're seeing the attitude of Well, I can't say that's not true. I can just tell you what I know because I've looked at 50 different sources and I have tried again and again to check what I say with other possibilities. Any actual professional will try to assemble their argument and then try to find any number of reasons why it is wrong. Whereas here it's, here's five reasons I might be right if I ignore every other question associated with these. So, for example, one that we passed by, they go to the Maya city of Palenque. Now, that's the modern name for it. It would have probably been Bakal, because the emblem glyph of the Ulaha dynasty there uh, was Bac or Bacal, which means of bone. And Kinich Hanab Pakal the fir, second, uh, the great Pakal of the 7th century that is buried in the Temple of the Inscriptions at, Paka, uh, at Palenque, his sarcophagus, we understand a lot of what's going on. This is the famous, oh, he's an astronaut. And this is discussed in some detail in the episode. Um, he's an astronaut. He's controlling things. And he's in a capsule. And there's a rocket behind him. It's like, no. If we look at many other depictions from classic Mesoamerica, he is associated with the Chan the tree of life that connects the three worlds, the underworld, this world, and the above world. And he is an apotheosis. He has died, because it is a sarcophagus. But he is being brought back as deity, because he's got smoke out of his forehead, like a deified person, like a divine person. And he's not got, as they say in the episode, padding behind him. (laughs) That's a ceremonial bowl with specific symbols in it. And we know these from many other examples, and we base the fact of what we say – or we base the interpretations of what we say on there being many other things that might comment on it. Whereas something like Von Daniken or this show saying he's an astronaut is literally purposely not looking at sources that have looked at 50 other things. They are purposely not looking at context or they are delinquently not looking at a context. Whereas we are trying to do so. We are like, how could I be wrong? How are the ways I could be wrong? And we only speak once we realize we have looked at many avenues, how we could be wrong, and they don't happen.
2: So I've recently begun thinking about part of this as what I call the tortoiseshell cat problem. All right? So if you know genetics... Oftentimes, uh, an example of uh, a sex-specific characteristic is the tortoiseshell cats. Females, uh, in order, it's a recessive trait for a cat. Oh, cats! Yeah, cats. cats. No, 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 not cats. So so this is a kitty cat. Let's start the tortoiseshell cat problem. So. Uh, the, the tortoiseshell coloring pattern, that sort of blotch, splotchy, you know, brown and tan kind of mixed cat thing. Um, that's a recessive trait and it's carried on the X chromosome, which means that in order to have the trait manifest itself, you need to have two X chromosomes. And in, in, in normal genetics, that means you would have a female. As a consequence, uh, it's commonly said that if you see a tortoiseshell cat, it's a female because Again, it has two uh, X chromosomes, therefore female. Now, here's the thing. If you ask a biologist, uh, is that true? Uh, are all cats with tortoiseshell female? They're likely to say it's usually true. Now, in reality, in your in my lifetime, if we watch a, a cat a day come through the neighborhood, chances are we could watch a cat a day for the rest of our lives and never see a male cat with a tortoiseshell pattern. But there is a circumstance where a cat can have two X's and a Y chromosome. It's a genetic defect. But if that happens and both those X's have that recessive trait, you could technically have a male tortoiseshell cat. Very yeah. unusual, but it can happen. But yeah. it's so absurdly
3: unlikely. Black swan kind of thing.
2: Yeah, it's just so rare that you, you don't need... To say it's true, it's it's effectively
3: true that all are female, right? You don't you don't build systems of understanding on it,
2: right? Yet that little bit of doubt, that 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 desire for science to be precise in its language—that's required. It's absolutely required that it be precise in its uncertainty. Yeah, uh, is not a cultural value, and it's not colloquially understood. And this is exactly the kind of exactitude that scientists want to keep for themselves professionally but actually works against it culturally as being valuable. And I I hate it
3: and I'm hoping – And we we absolutely see it in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the In Search of Show, you're going to see less of it because it frankly feels more honest. It feels more like honest inquiry. Yeah. This doesn't because it's based directly on Von Daniken's book, which does not have that charity – And when we see Ancient Aliens in 2009, which is based directly on Bond Anakin, we again see that lack of charity. Yeah. Um, So they leave Mesoamerica, and at this point, they transfer to the written record and myths and legends. And I think that's actually really important. Now, to be, again, to be fair, in 1972, Maya writing was very poorly understood. Today we can read the vast majority of it and we're refining our understanding. That was not the case in 1972 at all. There were a handful of people like Tatania Praskoryakov who could read bits of it, not phonetically. The phonetic breakthrough of Yuri Konorozov had been made in the 50s, but due to the Cold War was not accepted in the West until the 70s. And in fact, often people point to the 1973 exploration of the Palenque material a year after this, as the breakthrough in Maya writing. So that hadn't happened. So that's fair. That said, the fact that the Americas are shown as, and and other non-literate as, what's going on here? Whereas we now move to Tibet and the quote-unquote holy land of all these things, and all of a sudden there's text. This gets to a division, and we may talk about this in a future episode, between history and prehistory, and I'm air-quoting all of that, uh, in archaeology and understanding but There's a discussion of Tibetan books and all this But here's the part I really want to talk about There is an extended Section about The Ark of the Covenant That I think Is probably one of the most Important legacies Of this show So again, I want to point out the cultural context This show airs In 1972 In this episode, they talk about all of the detailed descriptions of how to create the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament of gold and dimensions and all of that and discuss the Ark of the Covenant as potentially a radio to talk to higher beings. Now, in this show, it's aliens, but that could easily become a radio to God, which is a direct quote from Raiders of the Lost Ark. 1981 i believe and i think what's really important here is the history of that movie in the late 1970s uh friends steven spielberg and george lucas were actually vacationing together with their partners in hawaii and spielberg had really wanted to make a james bond movie and he had been turned down. I think they were trying to push like that you had to be English to make a James Bond movie at that time. Yeah.
2: And I think Brockley made a mistake, but that's another thing. He, oh, <laughs> oh, that's oh, that's that,
3: that's a whole other interesting kind There's of a fashion.
2: timeline I might actually enjoy.
3: <laughs> yes, yes. But um, Lucas said, "Well, well, no, but we don't get what we're about to get." So Well, that's true. That? That's true. Well, yeah. good point. Yeah, it's a 50/50. Uh, so Lucas said to him, "No, no, no. I've got a better idea. What about, and then he basically describes the beginnings of what becomes Indiana Jones. Now, there is an amazing audio document. It, it, or Well, that audio document, it's a transcript and people have actually performed it audially, which is amazing. But over two days in the late 1970s, or I don't think it's 1980, I think it's very late 1970s, Lucas Spielberg Larry Kasdan, who scripted so many of your memories in the 1970s and 80s, and still works, and I think there's one other person I have to go look, got together and hashed out not just Raiders of the Lost Ark, but the concept of Indiana Jones. And this transcript exists, and we'll try to put that in the show notes, but... In this transcript, they explore so many things that become this character, and all of the weird stuff is coming from Lucas. Now, Lucas was an anthropology major. He always wanted to be an anthropologist, which is perhaps why he he talks repeatedly about, in making Raiders, oh, I finally got my tribe, when, he, when they film in Hawaii and they have all the jovitos running through Hawaii throwing spears at Indy, or – bows, bows and arrows. Not throwing the bows because that's a terrible use of a projectile weapon. His Ewoks, (laughs) which are again a primitive tribe. But then he makes archaeology professor, expert in the occult and obtainer of rare antiquities Indiana Jones. Now, in this script meeting or this development meeting, Lucas repeatedly refers to the villain which becomes Belok in Raiders of the Lost Ark As, I'd have to look up specifically, but I think it's basically Professor Von Daniken. He literally says Von Daniken. Wow. And he even references, he doesn't say chariots of the gods, but references the ancient astronauts thing. And then, of course, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Belloc character refers to the Ark of the Covenant as, it's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God.
2: Well, see, now you're making me – I can't believe I'm going to say this, but you're making me want to watch the fourth installment again with the knowledge that Lucas was always into this stuff.
3: Yes, he always was into it. Yeah. yeah. No, Well, we, we can talk about that. I actually – I don't like the fourth one. I think it's very interesting because it tried like the first one did. But I strongly – so it is clear that Raiders of the Lost Ark was very heavily influenced by the legacy of Von Daniken. And it is entirely plausible that Lucas read Chariots of the Gods, but if I had to put money down on a roulette table, yeah, one, always bet on black. But beyond that, I would probably put money on Lucas watched this. Yeah, yeah. I suspect this is the seed that gives us Raiders of the Lost Ark, or a seed, a seed. So I just want to put that out there. That's kind of amazing. Watching this, I was like, oh, no. They're talking about gold. He's going to call it a radio to talk to God. It's a radio to talk to God. (laughs) That's happening. All right. So they then walk through Egypt. One of the things that I keep hearing that
2: he says, it's funny to me how many things I've heard hundreds of times in other shows, and it was all right here, and nobody's answered this on this this type of show. What is the deal with Von Daniken making a – a big deal out of Tut's tomb uh, not having soot in it, and therefore they must have had uh, uh, electric lights. I don't know what the implications. There's a lot lot of vague implications.
3: Well, the idea there is that the the, the, the roof is not covered in soot, therefore they must not have used torches in there. And I am no expert in pyrotechnics, but I strongly suspect that has a lot to do with the fact that torches are – Far less powerful than you actually think. Yeah, You know, it turns out if you set a fire for a bit, it doesn't like turn everything black. But I'm just going to leave that one alone. Okay. You know, he, he talks about that. Uh, but they're they, – they, well, basically they're trying to argue that they must have used electric light. They must have had electric That
2: certainly – I mean, they imply a lot. There, there's yeah. a lot of things – sorry. There's a lot of things. And that's,
3: and that's a big hit on ancient aliens later where they are pointing at things that every other Egyptologist would say that's a lotus flower – but, like, they're actually like, oh, no, that's a that's a light bulb with a filament in it. There's a lot of discussion about the idea of light in Egyptian tombs. If you ever saw the 1999 The Mummy where they use gold mirrors, they actually yeah. do that in um, also in um, National Treasure, I think.
2: Yes, yeah, yep.
3: Where they use mirrors at sunlight. That doesn't seem to actually be a thing, but there's been a lot of people who have suggested that that, that, that idea. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem to actually be true, but it's a legitimate question to ask. But the reality simply is torches and candles. Turns out you can, you can, you can put a top on that shit. You can you, – you know, it's just – it's not that polluting. It, it really isn't. But again, if the audience is going through at high speed, then that really doesn't matter you know, you're, you're, you're quickly going through this material. So there's a lot of stuff Tut gets brought up. The Colossae Memnon get brought up lots of stuff about geometry, the usual, look at how big the pyramids are. Yes, they're big. I'm impressed at the same time. And we can link to this in the show notes. There are literally images of Egyptians dragging giant frigging statues of the sort that are talked about in the film. There are literally receipts of the right. construction crews. <laughs> Literal receipts. I'm not even talking about the Twitter. We have the receipts. No. Actual 4,300-year-old receipts of construction crews that worked on the pyramids at Giza.
2: And didn't I – I believe I read there was a labor strike at one point over beer. I mean that like that,
3: that. – i I'd, I'd have to look into that. They did pay people in beer. Yeah. Um, uh, Low-strength low Egyptian beer was better – from a bacteriological perspective than drinking water yeah. sometimes? Oh, yeah. I,
2: d- I didn't even mean to imply they were drinking and drunk. I just, yeah, right. Well, it's important to remember that before water purification germ theory, uh, alcohol was always your safer bet, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. and,
3: and, and alcohol, you know, weak beer goes back to at least 12,000 years ago. There are Natufian cave sites that have uh, evidence of, of beer production. I mean, it, bef- it, it is bef- an, an energy the drink. Holistic.
2: It's basically Brondo, right?
3: <laughs> Damn you. All right, so... Uh, they then go to England, they go to Salisbury Plain, they get the date of Stonehenge wrong, they say it's 2000 years old, it's actually more like 4500. Well, Stonehenge takes a long while to build, not because it's hard to build, but because it gets modified. Things get replaced. Other things get built in.
2: Yes, it was built in an accretive manner over time.
3: Well, And and also things were removed, too. Like it's, it's a living place for about a thousand years. And it was an important regional center. But they bring up a lot of things. Merlin flying things from Scotland. That's actually, I think, supposed to be Ireland. But I have to go double check that. And again, I will point this out. The fact that they brought Stonehenge into this episode is the rare Ancient Aliens show that said that hey, there's also a thing made by white people. Yes, the I was so right.
2: happy to see that. I really, really was. Yeah.
3: Stonehenge is is pretty much the one they do. Like yeah. they never do the Roman Colosseum. They never do cathedrals. But it's just a few minutes later we're going to Great Zimbabwe. So I don't. I don't know. I'm I, I'm sorry, Blake. I don't think you mean Zimbabwe. Oh. I believe you mean Z- Zim is that how they said it anyway baba baba booey Yeah, baba buoys simba that's, kind of that's yeah. it simba
2: buoy okay yeah wow memory
3: yeah there was a mess yeah they did a whole mess about did these hut buildings wait,
2: wait. this was like literally like the when people talk about uh, he did a drive-by this was a drive-by they showed this amazing thing and they're like could these mud
1: hut dwelling people have really done this? Or
2: was there a lost group of
1: master builders? On the African continent in the bushlands of southern Rhodesia are the ruins of Zimbabwe, meaning the heart of the lion. It is constructed of brick-shaped granite rocks, all exactly alike as if produced in a factory. 20,000 tons of identical building stones. They were laid to a height of over 30 feet to form walls which have stood for thousands of years. What masons trimmed and piled these stones with such astonishing perfection? Were they the ancestors of Bushmen whose straw huts surround the ruins, or members of a visiting group of master builders?
2: And in the same way that they're implying that um, you know they had electric lights in uh, to do Tut's tomb, they're implying these master builders are white. There's no mystery there. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So yeah, it's a nice wall. It's a, it's a good wall. Yeah. So they keep going on. They then spend a lot of time at Nus at uh, Easter Island at yeah. Easter Island. And we're going to have to a do, lot do a whole of episode time. on
2: Easter Island. There literally is one. I
3: kind yeah. I was going to say. I assume there there's an in search of ep- yep. episode on Easter Island. Um, And then it – the last place it goes archaeologically is Nazca. And if you know the Nazca lines of southern Peru from the first millennium CE, again, about 1 to 600 CE, they basically say all the things you're used to. I will point out that they literally talk in the episode about you must have been in the air to make these. And meanwhile, they're panning from a camera that is obviously on the ground. And they're showing you these things. From the ground. And you can just go to Instagram and see people that visit, and you can see the day like there are no mountains for viewing. There absolutely are. There I show this every semester to my students a map of the place where the figural ones. So there's two kinds of NOSCLons. There's the long geometrics. Those are the landing strips. They are well. They're not. Even Von Daniken, <laughs> even Von Daniken, eventually admitted they can't be because the soil there just didn't wouldn't work that way. Yeah. Even he eventually said they're not airline strips. But then there's the figural ones, and if you look at a map of the figural images, they're all distributed near hilltops because people were supposed to see them. Yeah. With the magical technology of walking uphill.
2: That's an important lie of omission that seems to still get perpetuated over and over and over and over again. There's a lot of yeah, lies he was, in here, but that one is yeah. – that's such a, a cornerstone of their ideas that I yeah. think to admit there's any weakness in it is
3: uh, – Yeah. Is, well, I mean, just, are they better viewed from above? Yeah, they are. Was the first person who found them on the ground? yes. Like I I, is in the 1940s, if I remember correctly, the first archaeologist or explorer to find them was like, I saw these things. And then, yes, they were eventually seen from the air, but they were not discovered from the air and they can be seen from the ground. And also, if you then build a friggin' tower that's 20 feet tall, they're seen even better, which is literally what they did with the camera. And 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 yeah, it's it's one of those we're here with these people in this cargo cult. Who have never ever met anyone, and meanwhile you're like, got a camera on them, and like it's obvious they know what it is, because they've met people before, you know. Yeah, it's 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 the same it's the same way. If you're alone and doing this heroic exploration, who's filming you?
2: Yeah, well that's Uh, that's the it it, a good example. I love the movie Ghost Watch. Uh, Oh yeah. There's a scene at the beginning that sort of if you're paying attention from a Mechanistic sort perspective. Uh, it's supposed to be a fixed camera, and then I apparently the BBC couldn't resist moving the camera to focus in on the
3: action. Oh, yes. And it's
2: like yes. if you're watching it, it's supposed to be a fixed camera. You're suddenly like you're completely. Oh, this isn't real, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: So the the whole episode ends on Carl Sagan. That Carl Sagan, super skeptic Carl Sagan, who is awesome, and. He's kind of salty in the episode where – so Carl Sagan had actually been quite open to the idea of ancient astronauts. In the early 1960s, he published a paper and talked about various things about looking at the myth of Oannes, which ties into the seven sages, the Apkalu of Sumer and Babylon in the Middle East – of culture bringers, of people that come from the ocean or the sky that bring writing and farming and civilization and all of these things. And he and they're weird. And he's like, this is potentially what we should be looking for. And then he looked at it for a few years and then decided, yeah, no, there's, there's – no, it's a great idea but there's no evidence. It really isn't true. He's in the episode in a big sweater, very big sweater. And he – basically talks smack about the rest of the episode, saying, "Yes, it's possible, but there's not a smidgen of reliable evidence for any of this. He also says, straight up, and this is why I want to lead us to the end, that this is an example of giving a new technological coat to old religious ideas to that old time religion with a new technological paint coat.
1: Dr. Carl Sagan is one of the directors of the Mariner mission exploring Mars. And he has a special interest in the possibilities of intelligent life in the universe. The question arises, might there have been a visit to the Earth in historical times? There are popular books on this subject. Um, It's an idea which people find exciting. It's a kind of, um, Scientific justification of theological belief, which people would rather believe uh, uh, in any case. uh, It's kind of modern dress for old-time religion. Well, what about that? Is is that possible or not? I can only say that you can't exclude the possibility, but there's not a smidgen of evidence that is compelling.
3: He pretty much says what Ancient Aliens is all about. That it's all about taking old myth and legend that have been cast as just literature, just myth, just whatever, by modernity in the 19th and 20th century and given it a reality. I mean, literally at the beginning of paranormal television, Carl Sagan's like, and this is why all of this is just cultural.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yep. Turns
2: out it didn't help. No, but that's this will not be the only time we run into that. (laughs) <laughs> oh no! Oh, no, no I, no, I no. think I think um, w- maybe uh, I, I don't want to get too deep here in our first episode, but I think maybe one of the the things that sort of implies that you've stepped out of uh, uh, honest investigation and into some sort of religious movement is when all of the assertions defy all the attempts to explain. Right, so like anything we can do to say, well, that's not true. The resistance is not to uh, find counter evidence; is to say it's to, instead it's to say it is two, right? <laughs> like that—that like that means you are not—they're not coming at this from an honest inquiry. They're coming at this from, well, from something else. I will else. say, yeah. I will say this:
3: as much as I have been repeatedly comparing this to ancient aliens in the present day, yeah, there is no as far as I can tell, zero, they're lying to you. There is no conspiracy in this. There is no attacking mainstream science.
2: Oh, I see what you mean. You mean that as they're describing the narrative, they're not saying, hey, the sort of gatekeepers of knowledge and reality, they're in on a conspiracy. You're just saying that there is lying to us, by the way. I. I <laughs> but yes. They're not – nobody in the script is saying – the truth being held back from you. right. Right.
3: Whereas that's right. a good 40% of an ancient aliens episode yeah. Yeah. is, is all the lies of uh, that, that mainstream science, which of course you can see the obvious political ties in. Yeah. Uh, that is not happening here. This is a hopeful, we will understand these things. Science is bringing these things to light. Oh my God, we're exploring our extraterrestrial legacy and you got Werner von Braun, and you got Eric von Daniken and they both have Vaughn's. It's the Battle of the Vons, and they are working together to understand the ancient past. What, what was it? The m- remembering the future? Yeah, was remembering the, the future. Yeah, yeah. That, that feels comfortable with the narrative here. What I find interesting, and I think this is going to be a theme that's going to come up repeatedly in when we talk about the TV show In Search Of, is that dark conspiratorial element is not present. One could watch In Search Of and get an appreciation of science whereas if one watches modern paranormal tv offerings all one will get appreciation of is grievance and conspiracy yeah i
2: think i think that's that's a good button
3: which is why this is not in re ghost hunters or not in re ghost adventures <laughs> or not in re expedition unknown Because that's a very different tone. So this has gone long, and I think we're wrapping it up. But I do want to point out that as much as we had a lot of smack to say about this, there is a hopefulness. This is clearly being presented as part of the space exploration period that is literally going on at this time. People are literally going to the moon while this is happening. That's going to change But this as the foundation of what becomes paranormal TV and then paranormal media, because there's nothing before this really outside of publishing in any significant sense, is hopeful and has that kind of 20th century, well, what if, that eventually will transform into – Here's the truth, and that's we we're not there yet.
0: Yeah,
2: and it'll be interesting because I don't remember from the actual TV series if it ever gets into that. I think it runs what six or seven
3: seasons, right? I think six seasons. I will say I know that they cover Roswell. Roswell does get an episode, and you and Roswell is inherently Conspiratorial, but we're not there yet. Yeah. So let's just, in this dark time, let us grasp onto what little hopeful light. All right. So that is in search of ancient astronauts. Not an episode of in search of the TV show. Not not Leonard Nimoy, Rod Serling, but not on screen. It's longer. This episode was longer. We apologize for it being that way, but the material. But we're going to try to – we're going to see how this evolves. But we do want to – and again, we credit Rachel Watch's Star Trek for the idea of ratings. We are not going to have a sexiness rating because – now, to be fair, Nimoy in the first episode that we're going to talk about rocked a red sweater. But we'll come back to that.
2: (laughs) Um, A red shirt. He but had, and, and he, he had a certain flair to his yes, pants.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes, this is nineteen seventies. Also, Neiman in a red shirt is disconcerting because no one wants Spock to die. That's right. But uh, but he does. But crediting Rachel watches Star Trek. They have ratings, and that inspired us that we should have an entertainment rating. And again, this may evolve. We may have more ratings, an entertainment rating, and a credibility rating and i think we're going to do this on a scale of 1 to 10 at least for the moment so blake what would you give this what would you give this on entertainment
2: i'm trying to think about this in terms of what would it be like if i wasn't who i am like i have consumed ooh, so ooh. much of this material so i'm trying to think about this from the becoming fresh coming fresh, fresh at this it. and I remember watching this you had a time as, machine
3: yeah. going back to 1972 yeah.
2: as a kid when I, when I saw this for the first time aired on television uh, I was absolutely blown away at all these amazing mysteries and I would suspect, I can't prove this, but I would suspect this was one of the leading reasons that when I got into school, like when I got into the first grade. Now, when you are you talking about
3: In Search of the TV show or this documentary? No, actual I'm about episode? this documentary. See, I'd never seen this yeah, before.
2: Yeah. I had okay. seen it, I saw it back in the 70s. Okay. Um, continue, and continue. and, and um, wanted to, I wanted to confirm. Yeah. And of course, it had commercials and whatnot. But, but um, it led me, it was one of those documents, one of those things that I consumed that led me. To go to the library and look at the books, right? To the, in like, the a,
3: zero zero you section. You got it.
2: Right. Yes. So, uh, so in that sense, it didn't physically hurt me to watch this. I I hate <laughs> so back then I loved it. Now I'm 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 torn because there's so much I despise about it. Um but entertainment, I, I'm I'm gonna give it a six. Like it was slightly more entertaining than I expected. But it was not obviously glossy, and it's not modern. It's a very slow thing, so I'm 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 trying to give it that sort of compared to other things of the time. This was novel, right? So it yeah. was interesting. There's nothing wrong with listening to Rod Serling talk. I enjoyed that. Uh, having Carl Sagan pop up at the end was a nice uh, palate cleanser. That was I enjoyed that. Yeah, well placed.
3: Uh, yes. Yeah, well. No, placed. the fact that they gave him sort of the the last taste. Yeah. Uh, like again. I don't think this was a very skeptical episode, but no, yeah, they ended with him. (laughs) I'll say this. I watched it once. So we're not doing mystery science theater here where they watch a thing three times, but we're probably going to watch these things at least certainly once, obviously, and maybe twice. Watching it the second time through on double speed felt almost where I wanted my mind to be. And when I put it back to normal, I was like, wait, is Sterling, did I put it on 0.5 because he's talking very slow very slow yeah yeah and that's his thing you know uh for your presentation for your consideration yeah like like he, he is a slow talker and that's fine he's a great he's a great narrator a great writer, amazing writer amazing yeah. writer uh I, I we were talking earlier in the pre-show he adapted uh Planet of the apes what was the other one he adapted um seven yeah. days of may oh, uh, really? the, oh, oh! Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Seven days in May. He did seven days in May. All right. So you gave it a six. Yeah. You were, I am, I'm generous. To,
2: I know I'm being generous. I know. Yeah.
3: You, you are trying to take yourself outside of yeah. who you are now. Yeah. No, if, I don't.
2: If, if, if it were now, I'd give it a three.
3: Right. So, yeah. yeah. So I can't, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. But at the same time, again, I'm fast forwarding to the next episode we're watching, which I've watched. And even though I have real problems with some of the science and the people involved, it was engaging. So I, my inner, oh, I want to, I want the Loch Ness monster to be real, I, or I want to believe that people are actually looking for it, like that sort of thing. So I do agree with that. That said, I my, myself could not get past the fact that there were grievous errors.
2: Oh, there were. Yeah.
3: And th- this is not even grievous error. And so this is the problem with me being entertainment versus credit, buzz. So let me just say this all. It's not even grievous errors of like, Oh, I'm a Mesoamerican archeologist with a doctorate in this blah, 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 blah. This is like map, like map errors. <laughs> like get a, get a map.
0: If there's a place you gotta go, I'm the one you need to know. I'm the map. I'm the map. I'm the map. I'm the map. I'm
3: the map. Those kinds of problems. That said, if I had to put myself in the shoes of not us, there was a lot of loving, slow pictures of, although of like Egyptian monuments, a lot of the images of Mesoamerican stuff, frankly, weren't that good. It's like, how can I shoot the temple of the feathered serpent to look bad? Like that happened repeatedly how can I? How can I? Like Palenque is one of the most beautiful Maya sites, and they made it look eh. like it wasn't well made. And I don't. I don't think this is just that it was translated from a German film. I think the original probably had these problems. Uh, and I'm not even talking about like film grain or quality. Blah blah blah. blah. I get that. So, but you're, you are in,
2: so you're taking out any as technical uh, problems. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh,
3: it, it's. I'm not even talking as a scholar. It just. It was slow. At parts, it then went too fast. That said, I could easily. I have had conversations with people that have said things, again, like our Raiders of Lost Ark bit, that I probably think came from here. So this clearly engaged people. It did not engage me. I found it infuriating in places. And it was work to get through. So I don't know. I guess I'd give it a four out of 10. And that's a generous four.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because... Well, well my, I, my my six is super generous.
3: <laughs> no idea. I, uh, the Nazca section was, I guess, well shot. The Nazca section felt well shot. And I think for a lot of people, that was kind of the takeaway. I think for a lot of people, that was their first exposure. Uh, the Egyptian stuff and the Maya stuff was so much worse, and and so yeah, four. So that well, that's my that's my entertainment. Well, let me like, ask I, you. I did, I did not enjoy this. Yeah, it, that yeah, enjoyment is a, a different category. I, I,
2: I yeah, I, I didn't. It didn't hurt my eyes. It hurt my brain. Um, what well, what about credibility?
3: Where, where All would right, you so, get, so credibility. I put credibility.
2: Um, now, I'm I, again. I'm okay. not asking you as an archaeologist. I'm trying to ask you to
3: imagine as an average citizen, if that's possible. Or maybe well, we should. Well, I don't ma- know. I think credibility. Yeah. This actually does have to be. We're in our skins. Okay,
2: like,
1: then. All right. Yeah. If, we, if
3: that's the case, let's go. It's, it's it. like a. T- it's like a two. Yeah. Like there are so many errors. There are so many errors. Yeah. There are so many things that I know are not true. Now, some of these things, for the time, for the time. I would give it a credibility of uh, three or four. What we know now. I think this is actually how we should approach this in the future. Again, we're evolving, folks. For the time a three or four, because there were still huge errors, but there were a lot of things that we would critique now that we didn't entirely understand. From a now perspective, a two. Yeah. Like it's not aliens made a treaty with fish against dinosaurs. That's an Ancient Aliens episode, by the way, folks. That's a real episode. They literally said that. I'm not making that up. I'm not making that up. They literally like, Sailor Canceled because they made a treaty with aliens. Let's yeah. just let it sink in. Huh. Jesus Christ. But uh, from a time perspective, I would say a four. From a now perspective, a two. It's not remotely credible, but they are at least showing you real things. And I get the feeling... Some of the errors are not omission. They're just, we don't know what we're talking about. They're mistakes rather than omissions, which I guess is better, even though everyone got paid. But, yeah.
2: I know too much about it now, right? So I'm not even sure I'd give it a two at this point. It it was nice to have Sagan in there. But maybe... I'm going to have to go with like a one, because Mm -hmm. now... You know, at the time when I was a kid, I remember thinking, Oh, this is fascinating. The whole world's going to change because people, people are going to have to look into this stuff. There's all this evidence. Clearly, if we've been visited by aliens, that is important because what happened to them? Where did they go? You know, are they still here? Are they coming back? These are all really interesting questions. And now I'm older. And science has moved on, and I've read a lot, and I just realized there's basically nothing to this stuff. So you feel more betrayed? I I feel very betrayed, and I, I I specifically feel betrayed by Eric Von Daniken and his publisher because he even he knew better on a lot of this stuff, right? I mean, I I don't know how much genuine mystery there was at the time, or how much people at the time were doing like we are and going, can't you people? look at a book and see this is not true.
3: <laughs> I think that's actually a really interesting point. My my own, and maybe this should have been earlier, and, and that's not a request to edit it in. My own trajectory on this stuff, I was actually thinking about this for other reasons recently. I, my, my entryway was not, like I am an archeologist. Like it's my profession. It's, you know, I, I teach it, I study it, I do it. My entryway and all this, this weirdness was not that it probably initially was cryptozoology and then ufology. And those have been the things I've found most interesting since I've actually kept archaea until relatively recently. I kept archaeology out of it. Like when I taught my first course on all of these sorts of in search of topics of ghost hunters and cryptozoology and, and uh, um, there's a third one I'm forgetting Uh in 2007 at Tulane University, I we didn't do ancient aliens. We didn't do all of that because I thought, oh well, but I do real archaeology. That's just a whole other thing. Like that was that was not on my radar. And I'm sure it was in some senses. You know, in my teens, I became a Lovecraft person and all these other sorts of things, and that's clearly part of it. But I didn't have that buy-in when I was young. Like. Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and UFOs and even, like, ghosts and poltergeists, I was interested in that. But the whole Nazca lines, I was aware of it, but I didn't really have any emotional investment. So I don't feel betrayed by any of this from, like, youth in the way I do in other things. So we've got – actually,
2: there are two other – full, hour-long documentaries that came out before In Search Of. But I believe next week we're going to start looking at Yeah, we're going to start
3: in the show. This the is show. already too
2: long. Yeah, this is – well, but but you can see what we're calling it in research of. that. that, yeah. that this is a, a good indicator that if you do a little digging – oh, it also – it kind of reminds me of um, is it Hitchens' razor, which is what can be asserted without evidence can also be dismissed without evidence. But I think if you look out the window – You'll see that people don't dismiss what can be asserted without evidence.
3: Well, and that would be my rejoinder to, to Hitchens is that what can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence in the sense of academic discussion. You can't dismiss because it doesn't have evidence if a lot of people socially believe in it. Then socially you can't dismiss it. From a research perspective of physics or what actually happened in the past, sure, from a Why do people care about these sites? Why do people care about science? You cannot dismiss it. And I think that's a huge mistake that is made by many academics. They're like, well, I know this is wrong. I don't really care if anybody else does. Therefore, I'm going to keep on going on doing what I do. Well, that's not how the world works.
2: Yeah, it is not clearly. It's clearly not how the world works.
3: Yeah, And I think that's why in search of is important. It is the beginning of paranormal media, and that's why I think in research of is going to – why we're doing it. We enjoyed this as younger people, but we now recognize its importance for good and for bad and for other on where we are now. And we're going to continue to hit those notes as well as talk about bell bottoms and synth music. And And weirdly
2: hanging paintings in a dark background. This is going to be good. All right. (laughs) But um, in preparation for next week, I'm going to go water my plants uh, and see if they have anything to say about
3: it. (laughs) Well, let's, I I, I do like the idea. Let's, let's tease what next week's is Yeah. next week's episode or next time's episode is in search of other voices. And if you've listened to all of us, You might think, oh, other voices, they're going to be talking about – if you've listened to Archaeological Fantasies or Monster Talk, oh, that's going to be Theosophy. That's going to be the Ascended Masters. It's like, no, actually Plants. It's going to be Plants. It's an episode about talking to plants. Hey, hey, TV producer. I've got an
2: idea for a TV series. It's going to be all kinds of weird stuff, strange stuff.
3: science and exploration and and weird monsters and aliens. But why don't we start it with plants? Let's talk about plants. (laughs) Yeah. That was a choice. It's going to be fun. The the enthusiasm or whatever you hear in our voice is because neither of us realized that the first episode of In Search Of was – was was talking to players. Yes, yeah, it was a little weird. But you know what? Here's a spoiler. It's actually better than you think. It is. It's actually better than you think. But we will save that for another investigation. You've been listening to In Research Of.
2: This is the pilot episode of season one of our podcast. Each week, we'll be watching and discussing a new episode from the television show In Search Of. The actual series episodes are much shorter than this pilot. So this was an outsized episode to kick us off. But as I record this, we already have quite a few episodes in the can, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing them as much as Jeb and I have been enjoying recording them. We're just getting started, but if you like this show and want to support us, you can donate to the cause at patreon.com forward slash inresearchof. We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter account at inresearchof. Links to that will be in the show notes. On behalf of Jeb Card and myself, Blake Smith, thank you for listening.